Welcome to the Dream Job System, the only podcast that provides proven tangible strategies to help you land a job you love without traditional experience and without applying online. Get ready to level up your job search with your host, Austin Belsack. Hey everyone, what is up? What is happening? Welcome to another episode of the Dream Job System podcast. I'm your host, Austin Belsack, and today you are in luck. We have our Ask Austin Anything episode for January. So if you're new, if you're just tuning in, if you've never heard an Ask Austin Anything episode before, here's the deal. Basically, over the month, over the course of the month, I source questions from you, the Dream Job System podcast audience, and I choose a couple of them to answer live on the show here. And these episodes tend to be a lot of fun for two reasons. One, we get to talk about stuff that I don't usually cover on the other episodes. So we can talk about things like habits and routines, or you know, we can get a little bit more personal. Today, we'll talk a little bit about mental health because there's a great question from Nicole there. Uh, but we just get to cover some fun topics. And then on top of that, you all get to have your questions answered personally, right? So if you want to submit a question for our next iteration of this, which is going to be in February, you can go to cultivatedculture.com forward slash AAA. So again, that's cultivatedculture.com forward slash and then the letter A three times. You can submit your question there and we will select a few to answer on the next iteration of this next month. But for now, let's jump on in with the first question from Sarah, who is out of Pittsburgh. So Sarah asks, Austin, you were you mentioned you were promoted three times at Microsoft in the five years you worked there. How did you manage to do that? Any tips for people climbing the ladder? So this is a great question uh, because once we get that dream job, right, which is a lot of what we focus on, uh, the next goal we usually have is to get that promotion, right? We want more responsibility. We want more money. So what are some ways to do that? Now, just a quick note here. If you look at my LinkedIn profile, you will see uh, two roles under Microsoft, which uh, technically equals one promotion, right? I went from partner manager to partner sales executive or director of partner development. And people always say, you know, well, how are you promoted three times? So Microsoft has two different ways that you can basically get promoted. One is a traditional way, which you see on my, my LinkedIn, where I applied for a job that was, you know, a higher level of seniority and had more responsibility and I got that job and that was a promotion. But there's another way that you can get promoted at Microsoft where they use this leveling system behind the scenes and a lot of these larger tech companies do this. So you're assigned a level when you get hired and as you grow, you are eligible for level increases, which are essentially promotions uh, within your same role. You know, you can get a level bump if you get a new role as well, uh, but that's a way for Microsoft to promote people and and enable them to make more money or enable them to uh, be eligible for different roles uh, without necessarily changing their, their current role. So I got two of those level bumps while I was at Microsoft, and then I did make that transition from partner manager to director of partner development. So how did that happen? Because three times in five years is, is not typically the norm, I would say. And there were two things that really uh, helped me do that. So the first was getting super, super clear on the path to promotion, the path to success. So what I would do at the beginning of each year is I would sit down with my manager and I would come up with a list of objective criteria. So we would talk and I would say, you know, hey, here's my goal for the next 12 months. At the end of 12 months, I want to be in this position. And my end goal is to get a level bump or my end goal is to get this specific job. And then what we would do is work backwards and I would 
push us to come up with objective criteria. So not just, well, we'd love to see you take on more stretch projects, or we'd love to see you get more experience talking to clients or subjective things like that. Those are really hard to measure and hold people accountable to. Whereas we might say, I want to see you grow your book of business by 15%, or I want to see you successfully sell through this type of feature to a C-level person at the partner. And so when we got very, very clear on those objective criteria, I could go back and say, hey, I grew my book by 16%, which is more than we uh, we had aligned on earlier. I beat my goal. Or, hey, I, I didn't just sell through one feature. I sold through two features and we negotiated with the C-level folks over there. And so, you know, I, I beat that goal as well. I checked that box. And so what this does is it really makes for a compelling case on your end, right? When you have objective criteria to hit and you hit them or you exceed them, you make a really compelling case for yourself because one, you've clearly defined the the threshold or, or the goal, right? And then if you exceed that, that is very obvious. But the other reason is that a lot of other people aren't doing this. You know, they're still going by that subjective criteria. And so come performance review time, they don't have a lot to stand on when it comes to making their case. And so when your case uh, is perceived to be much stronger than everybody else's, you can stand out. And the people who stand out are the ones who get promoted. The second thing that I did was focus a ton of time and attention on building relationships with people who were difference makers, people who were top performers, because I knew those people would, one, enable me to grow as quickly as possible, but two, they were in the good graces of the decision makers, right? So I did some digging, I did some research, I did some asking around, and and I identified a handful of people who were considered to be, you know, the best at what they did. They were top performers. They were, you know, well-regarded by everybody. And I really invested in building relationships with them. And I used a lot of the strategies we talk about on this podcast, you know, things like the advice triangle, you know, giving before taking and, and all of that good stuff. And by building relationships with those people, when promotion time came around or when that open role showed up, I had a lot of people who had my back, right? They would send letters of recommendation on my behalf. They would vouch for me. And that makes for a really compelling case. So those are the two things that I would recommend doing. If you can identify the folks who are top performers at your current company or at your new company, and you really invest a lot of your time building relationships with them using the strategies we talk about on this podcast, that's going to be massively helpful. And then the second piece is, consistently checking in with your manager and making a concrete objective plan with real tangible numbers, metrics, outcomes, results uh, that you can then look back on and be able to say, hey, I I beat these. If you do those two things, uh, you are really going to boost your chances of landing that promotion of climbing up the ladder and being more successful in your current job or that next job. So that's a great question and I love it. And it's followed by another question that definitely hits home for me and, and is something that I, I'd like to do, you know, a little bit more exploration around in my content and on the podcast. So that question comes from Nicole in North Carolina. And she asks, what do you do in your daily life to keep your mental health healthy? Uh, so that's a tongue twister. Say, say that five times fast, but uh, keeping my mental health healthy. There are a couple of things that I do here. And I think the first place to start and the best place to start is just thinking about, you know, what your best days look like. And what I mean by that is if you think about a great day that you had, and then you look at the things that happened on that day, and then you expand that to more great days that you've had, what you can do is identify the things that happen on those days to make them great. So in other words, 
exercise is a big one for me. And I guess we, we can jump right into to stuff here. But uh, on days that I don't exercise, I see a noticeable difference in my mental state. You know, my happiness is is a little lower than it normally is. I tend to be more susceptible to anxiety. I tend to be more susceptible to letting things that normally wouldn't bug me get under my skin. And so exercising is such a huge component of keeping my mental health healthy. And so what are those things for you? And once you identify them, you can start to build habits around them and you can start to make sure that, you know, no matter what else happens today, I'm going to check these five boxes or at least three of these five or four of these five, because I know if I do that, I put myself in a really good position for this to be at least a decent day. You know, not every day is going to be a 10 out of 10 or an eight out of 10, but I'm giving myself a better chance by doing these things. So what do those things look like for me? Well, I already mentioned one, which is exercise. And exercise is coupled with another one, which is learning. Uh, On the days where I'm able to take some time to just learn for fun, not necessarily having to learn to implement, because I've done a lot of that over the last three years where learning wasn't necessarily done out of pleasure. It was more done out of necessity. You know, we don't have a lot of time. We have this launch coming up. How do we optimize it? We're launching on Instagram. How do we maximize that? A lot of the learning was driven by the projects and initiatives that that we were putting out there, not necessarily by the thought of, hey, this, this is an interesting topic that I'd like to explore. And I've been able to do much more of that now since I've taken Cultivated Culture full-time. And that is a huge thing for me when I'm able to sit down and just read a book for 20 minutes in the morning. And when I'm able to listen to some podcasts, uh, that is a big difference maker in my day because it allows me to put my focus into something that's fun and not necessarily business-oriented. Even if the, the podcasts or the books are business-oriented, you know, I still get to take a step back and you know let my brain relax for a moment. So exercise kind of tackles both of those because I can go for a run, uh, but I can also listen to a podcast while I'm doing that. And uh, a lot of people always ask me, you know, you know, what podcasts am I listening to? So the ones right now that are in the rotation here, I'm just pulling them up. But I've recently gotten into Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard. That one has been a lot of fun. Um, I love the people that he interviews. I love his focus on sort of authenticity and just being real and talking about this stuff that we're talking about now, mental health and and struggles that that people have. I also do Up First from NPR every day. That's pretty much how I get most of my news. I don't like to go read the news online because that tends to be a bit of a rabbit hole and, and not necessarily a positive one. I do listen to The Daily from New York Times as well. But then outside of that, Tim Ferriss show is another one. Marketing School from Neil Patel and Eric Sue is another one. Uh, Unlocking Us with Brene Brown. And I feel like I'm missing one here. Oh, Your Undivided Attention is another one that, that I'm really enjoying from uh, Tristan Harris, who did The Social Dilemma, if, if you all, or he was featured in The Social Dilemma. Uh, Your Undivided Attention is fascinating because it basically talks about where we're at with this attention economy and the social media platforms and how it's effectively destroying the fabric of our society, not to get too crazy or or preachy. But the podcast is really interesting because they talk through not just the bad stuff that's going on, but solutions as well. Um, So would definitely recommend that or, or any of the ones that I mentioned, but I hit those on my run and then I try to find that extra time for learning. And then the third one that's been a big difference maker 
is no work or email before 8.30. So what I do is I use a Chrome extension called BlockSite. And BlockSite essentially lets me choose sites that I blacklist and I set a schedule. So from 10 p.m. until 8.30 in the morning, uh, Gmail, LinkedIn, and a, a couple of other sites are completely blocked and there's there's no way to access them. And I've also removed everything from my phone. So I don't have any social media apps on my phone. I don't have the LinkedIn app on my phone or, or any of the other apps. I've also used Apple's content restrictions to block email and LinkedIn on my browsers on my phone as well. So basically, uh, the only time I have to access LinkedIn or email is from 8.30 to 10 p.m. on my laptop, on my desktop. That's the only way I can do that. And that's been really great because I get my mornings back and I get to start the day on the right foot versus, you know, before I was hopping out of bed and opening my email or opening LinkedIn and trying to, you know, get started on engagement or get a head start on those emails. And that was really awful. That led to a big spiral of anxiety and stress and, you know, other mental health issues that, you know, none of us want want to endure or go through. So being able to take that step back and set those boundaries has been huge. Uh, and then the last thing I'd say is is just finding somebody to talk to. So I ended up hiring uh, a business psychologist slash therapist, um, and she and I meet on a weekly slash biweekly basis, and we just talk through a lot of this stuff. And having somebody objectively come in and and just look at your situation and the things that you're thinking and feeling from their unbiased perspective can be. Uh, really eye-opening. And I attribute a lot of the the growth and the progress that that I've made in terms of managing a business, um, also managing a business while working full-time to the, the work that I've done with the business psychologist that I work with. So I would definitely recommend finding somebody to chat with, whether it's a coach or whether it's a therapist. You know, sometimes people have different associations with the titles and, and things like that. So whatever you're most comfortable with, I think it really comes down to finding that person who is able to understand, you know, where you're at, where you're coming from, and is able to help you understand the root of those feelings and give you some tools to manage them. But that is basically my toolbox. And that has been really, really effective for me. So I definitely recommend trying a few things out. You know, as as far as your comfort zone goes, it's taken me a long time to build up to that stuff. So don't feel like you have to jump into all that right off the bat. So our next question is more job search related. It comes from Deborah, who is in South Africa, awesome across the pond. And we're talking about ageism here. So she asks, how do you get around the issue of ageism in the job search? I'm 58. I'm young, fit, enthusiastic. I'm up to date on digital trends. And I have so much more experience to offer uh, on a senior management level, but I can't escape the feelings that many of my applications are overlooked because of my age. Uh, so this is something that that has been plaguing the job market for a long time. Uh, you know, these companies look at people who are more senior and they have some questions, they have some objections, some red flags pop up in their head for a number of reasons. And it's not fair and it sucks and it needs to stop. But the way that we overcome it now is to understand what's happening and to come up with a strategy here. So one of my favorite examples of working your way in somewhere and handling objections is the movie Eight Mile. So I don't know if anybody's seen this, but essentially Eight Mile is about uh, Eminem, the rapper's story. And, And at the end of the movie, there's this final freestyle battle and Eminem gets up there and he basically throws out 
everything that the other guy could say against him. He talks about, you know, living in a trailer park with his mom. He talks about having his stupid friends and all this other stuff. And then he throws the mic over at the other dude. And the guy has nothing to say because Eminem's already said all of it. So that's exactly, and if you haven't seen the clip, you should definitely give it a watch because it's super entertaining. But that's exactly what we want to do uh, with ageism or really any any objections that we're facing in the job search, whether it's coming from a non-traditional background or anything else. So what I would do is I would sit down and I would write down a list of all the objections that might come up around my age. So it could be, we're not sure if this person is, you know, it, it putting yourself in the company's shoes, of course, but maybe they're thinking, we're not sure if this person is up to date on state of the art strategies. We're not sure if this person is familiar with the new tools that are out there. Might this person be too expensive because of their experience? Uh, How will this person feel potentially reporting to a manager who's younger than them? And so write out all these things. And then what I want you to do is take a second, you know, take a break, come back and then write out your answers, the way that you would handle those objections. And so if somebody is, you know, saying, hey, we're not sure if you're up to date on digital trends, maybe you have a portfolio that showcases all of the work that you've done that is up to date, say the art, and that's something that's readily available. Or around the salary piece, you know, maybe you're willing to be flexible there. So you can come out and say that, you know, I understand that you know, you may look at my resume and my experience and say, oh, this person may be, you know, way more expensive than what we have budgeted for this role. But here's why I'm flexible. You know, first, I'm willing to be flexible, but here's why, you know, I'm really excited about X, Y, and Z, or I'm looking to make this transition. If you give people a reason and you tell them that they're flexible, again, we, we sort of handle that objection. So I want you to go through the list. I want you to write down the ways that you'd handle all those objections. And then the next time that you go to an informational interview or you have an interview with a recruiter or hiring manager or whoever it is, I want you to think about how you can proactively weave these objection handling statements into your answers. So for example, if you sit down in an interview and a recruiter says, well, why do you want to work here? Maybe you give your your spiel, but inside of that spiel, you call it out and you say, now look, you may see my resume and you may see the dates on there and you may have some preconceived notions. Again, not 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 saying that you do, not accusing you, not assuming, um, but some people do tend to have those. And so I just want to address a couple of them up front, you know, first, and then you just dive into the the answers that you gave. And a lot of people have a hard time keeping objections when you overcome them, right? And especially there's there's a lot of research out there that shows that when we proactively handle an objection, when we show that we know that this is something that's on somebody's mind and we handle it, they're actually much more willing to accept that answer versus if they had to bring it up themselves. So if you can find ways to proactively weave these objection handling statements into your answers, into your story, into the conversations, you're going to be so much better off. And then the other thing I do outside of just that is I would work to maintain a portfolio of up-to-date certifications and projects and things of that nature, just so you can point to that and say, well, look, I just got this Salesforce certification, or I just got this Azure Cloud certification, or here's a portfolio where I broke down, you know, how to build this out in this new coding language or this new framework or whatever it is. That's such an easy way for you to showcase with, you know, actual data that and actual, you know, tangible evidence that that you are up to date. 
So those are the two things that I would recommend. And then the bonus or the last piece, or maybe even prerequisite is a better word, uh, but you want to be going for these conversations and you want to be building relationships, right? Because a lot of this stuff is stuff that happens in a face-to-face conversation. A lot of that is not going to be able to be available to you through the online application process. But I hope you already know that if you are listening to this episode and you've been listening to this podcast. So our next question comes from Linda in Ottawa. Um, we're, we're going, it looks like we've got a couple international people here. Uh, but Linda asks, how do you prepare a VVP that avoids rubbing people the wrong way or making them think that you don't know the business well enough if you suggest the wrong things? Um, for example, I want to avoid thoughts like, we already tried that and it didn't work. We just spent 100000 bucks on you know what you're recommending. Um, or why are you being so presumptuous or condescending? Uh, you don't have any of the information. So I would say a couple of things here. First and foremost, the value validation project, you know, part of it is the value that you bring, but part of it is just the exercise itself. You know, the fact that you were willing to go do this research, you were willing to go put in the time and the effort to create this project, uh, that in and of itself is really valuable and just shows that the type of person that you are. And most great companies are going to notice that, you know, maybe they have already implemented that, or maybe, you know, they have data that shows that what you're suggesting isn't the best way to go, but that data is not publicly available. These companies recognize that you're not a full-time employee. These companies recognize that, you know, you you are somebody on the outside, but they should also recognize that you put in the extra effort to put this project together. So this is actually a great litmus test because if a company turns back to you and says, well, you know, how could you be so presumptuous? Like, why would you even put this together? Or like, that's, you know, why would you even recommend this? We, were, we already did this. Uh, that's an interesting way to respond to somebody who spent a lot of extra time uh, with the intention of, of adding value and showing how much they want to work at this company. And so I would then extrapolate that and say, well, what what is it going to be like when I put in extra effort after working for these people? You know, if I put in the extra hours and maybe something doesn't work out, uh, am I going to get the same reaction? Are these people not going to be willing to allow me to try new things and, and maybe fail at some of them? And there's a lot of questions that come up for me there. So I would view that as a red flag. And I would also have faith in the fact that great companies will recognize that simply just putting together the value validation project is, you know, an immense part of the value add that that project brings. Um, So that's the first piece. And then the second piece is just doing really thorough research. Uh, You know, if you do your research on the companies, if you listen to their earnings calls, if you try to get into the product itself, if you survey the company's prospects or customers or users, uh, so on and so forth, you know, a lot of the methods that we've talked about in in past episodes, and you get a really good sense of where the company is at, you're not going to be too far off. You know, maybe you suggest something that they already tried, or maybe you suggest something that doesn't work for a specific reason that no outsider would know, that's totally fine. But if you do your research, you're likely to stumble upon some really, really good ideas. There's always something to be found with a lot of these companies. And so it's really up to us to dig in, dig deep and find out what that thing is. So if you do your research um, and you put together something that you feel really good about, you can also get it validated by other people in the industry. Maybe you found somebody who's a mentor who works at another company or that same company even, you could run it by them and see what they think. Maybe you have a friend or a family member or whoever it is that could look at it. Um, You can get some third-party validation before you drop this thing in there. But overall, uh, you don't need to have a brand new revolutionary business idea 
simply just showing that you're committed to going above and beyond to show how badly you want this opportunity, that's a huge part of the value add for a value validation project. So Linda, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. Moving on, uh, again, across the pond, even from from Canada to Tal in Israel, um, they ask, what should I write in a cold email when there is no job opening at the moment, but I want to introduce myself politely and professionally? So that's a great question because uh, this is tapping into basically what we you know call the hidden job market, right? And if you scroll back to the early episodes of the podcast, there is an episode on the hidden job market. And essentially, what the hidden job market is, uh, is the, the setup where a company announces a role internally and it starts getting candidates and, and interviews from internal referrals or internal employees, right? So if a company posts a role internally, everybody internally finds out about it. They put their name in the hat, they refer people in, but maybe it's not posted online yet for whatever reason. Uh, that's a big reason why so many of these roles are filled via referral or word of mouth um, or internally, right? So that's what we're thinking about. And the only way to get into that pool is to build relationships ahead of time. So this is a great move to make. Emailing somebody at a company that you're really pumped about even though they don't have roles open right now, that is definitely a best practice. That's definitely something that I would recommend. And so how do we do it? Well, we really want to play the long game here. And so this goes back to treating your relationships like a bank account, right? We want to add value first. And in this case, we just want to keep adding value without making a huge ask right away. Because one, if a role pops up, we should be able to hear about it from them. Or if we hear about it from some other way, we can get that referral immediately. But the more value you add up front, the easier it will be for you to broach that subject. So what does that value look like? Well, it, it can really depend on the person that you're engaging with, but it goes back to a lot of the core tenants that we've talked about before. So can you find something interesting about their background that you can ask about and tap into? Can you leverage something like the advice triangle? And can you start putting in the work and showing them that you're somebody who's not afraid to roll up your sleeves? Are they active online? You know, Can you go comment on their LinkedIn posts or can you retweet their their tweet on Twitter? Can you take an article that they've written and send it to some colleagues and let them know? There's a ton of different ways to do this. And, and we cover a lot of that uh, on the blog and in different episodes. But the biggest thing here is, you know, you don't want to email them and say, hey, there aren't any job openings, but I love this company and I want a job eventually. So let's connect, you know, instead, let's email them, let's make it about them, let's build them up, let's start creating that relationship. And then as the relationship progresses, as we add more deposits into that bank account, we can get to a place where we feel good to say, you know, by the way, some things have changed at my company and I am in the market for new roles. Uh, you know, through our conversations, I've really come to get a better understanding of what you all do at this company. And, and it sounds really interesting. If some role does open up that's in this space or of this job title, you know, I'd really appreciate the, the opportunity to put my name in the hat for it. And at that point, that person will be more than willing to do it. So that's really what it's all about. You know, start by focusing on them and, and building the relationship first and then work your way up to that ask. Our next question comes from Sammy in Florida. So Sammy asks, and these last two questions will be sort of side hustle business focused, which uh, I always love talking about. But Sammy asks, how did you make the choices for the stylistic parts of your brand, the blue color, the cultivated culture logo, et cetera? And that's a, that's a great question because people tend to start in the wrong area with business. You know, we go for the LLC first or we buy the business cards or we get a fancy logo or we, we do all this stuff before we've really validated the idea. 
And so for me, um, it's kind of a funny story, you know, coming up with the name even, I just made a list of of all these names and I was hitting some serious writer's block. And so I, I just handed them to my wife and I said, which one of these is, is the best? And she picked Cultivated Culture. And, and so I said, great. And I bought the domain and we were off to the races. And I was just more frustrated that I was spending too much time picking a name than anything else. You know, there was other stuff that that needed to be done. And then in terms of the color, uh, I just looked around. So at the time, you know, LinkedIn was blue. Facebook was blue. Uh, Instagram had a, a blue uh, theme to to their app at, at the time. And so all these like major tech companies had blue, right? So I said, okay, I, I like blue. Uh, all these guys have picked blue for a reason. I imagine, you know, they have much larger budgets and they have teams that research this stuff. And, and if you look into the psychology of a user experience, uh, you know, offering a red button versus a blue button actually changes the way that our brain perceives what's on the page. And so I said, you know, these companies pick blue for a reason. I'm going to pick blue. Um, and I actually used a tool to like scoop the uh, Instagram hex color for their blue. And then I changed it slightly and and I basically ran with that. And I ended up creating my own logo. I just, you know, picked a font that I liked and I did a little bit of Photoshop work to create my own logo. And if you go, you can use a, a tool called the Wayback Machine, which will show you pages from a long time ago. If you go look at my site from like 2016, one, I was still using my pen name, which I talked about, I think in the last ask me anything. Uh, but also I had like this horrible, like dark blue, light blue combination. It, it looked like terrible, but that wasn't really what mattered. People really resonated with the content and that's what matters. So that sort of leads into the, the second question. But basically where we evolved from there, Sammy, was that, you know, I started super amateurish. You know, I did it all myself. Did it look great? Absolutely not. But does that really matter? Also, not really. What really matters is the content and, and the value that you deliver. And then so over time, um, I basically hired people to help me with this stuff. So uh, in early 2019, I hired a designer to help me create a brand guide. And we picked a font together and we picked specific hex colors and we picked, uh, we created a, a bit of a new logo. And so, you know, I worked with somebody professional to, to flesh out what you see now. And then I hired a designer to take that core concept, that brand guide and expand it onto, you know, basically into a full website. And that's what you see on the site right now. So I think what I'm trying to illustrate here is uh, it's totally fine to DIY it. And it's totally fine if it's not the prettiest thing in the world from the beginning, because that's not really what matters. And if you nail the other stuff, which we'll talk about in the next question, uh, you can always invest in having a professional help you pick this stuff down the road. So don't worry about it too, too much. Don't let design or uh, logos or fonts or colors or anything like that get in the way of you validating a product that people actually want. And so that's a great segue into our last question here, uh, which comes from Jordan in Wisconsin. And Jordan asks, if you had to start a business from scratch, what are the major steps you'd take to get started? So this is such a good question because I think so many people get this wrong. You know, what we end up doing is something that I just read this book called uh, Launch by, by Jeff Walker, and he calls it hope marketing, which is where we create a product and then we hope that it will sell. And this is what most people do, right? We have this cool idea and we go build out this product and then we say, well, yeah, like there's no reason people wouldn't buy this, right? Because it's a cool idea that I had. And then people put it out there and then nobody buys it. So the best thing that you can do is validate your idea and validate that it's something that people are willing to pay for upfront. So how do you do that? 
Well, first you make a list of, well, first you come up with your product offering and that in and of itself could be its own podcast episode or, or, you know, even, you know, deep dive masterclass or, or whatever it is. But if you have an idea of what you want to offer, um, and that's your starting point, first, you just want to come up with a list of people who might be interested. And this could be friends, this could be family, this could be colleagues, this could be people on LinkedIn. Um, it could be just people that you, you feel like, let's say you're going to offer marketing services to small businesses. Well, maybe you make a list of all the small businesses in your town. Um, you just need to come up with a list of, of, it's a small list, but of critical mass. You know, if we can get to 50 people minimum, I'd say is a good starting point. Uh, and obviously the more the merrier, but you have that list and it should be full of people who are interested or potentially interested in this product or service for some reason. So the next step is uh, sending a, an email to these people and basically saying, you know, hey, and, and, and we're positioning this email. It's not a sales email. It's a feedback email. We're asking them for feedback. So we send them an email and we basically say something along the lines of like, hey, so-and-so, um, you know, hope you're doing well. Hope you're having a great week, yada, yada. Uh, I'm thinking about creating a resource around X where X is your product or service. And then you say, I'd really love your input. I'd really love uh, your feedback on on what we're creating so that we make sure it's as valuable as possible or, or the best that it can be. Would you mind filling out the survey or would you mind replying with your top two questions about this product, this service. Um, and again, try not to call it a product or service, but maybe focus more on the outcome. So let's say that your small business is helping pregnant women get back to their pre-baby weight through diet and nutrition. Well, maybe that's what you say. You know, I'm creating a comprehensive resource that's going to help new moms get back to their pre-pregnancy weight. Uh, and then, you know, it, it, later on in the email, you say, we want to make sure that this is the best resource for moms who are looking to lose that pregnancy weight. So not talking about like, hey, I want you to help me make this an awesome product, but more saying this is the type of thing that we're putting together. This is the goal at the end of the day. What are your two biggest questions about that goal? You know, if you're a mom who's looking to lose that pregnancy weight, what is what are your biggest two questions about that? Or, you know, if you're somebody who's looking to start an advertising business in the real estate market, what are your two biggest questions about that? And so you get these two questions from people. And this is your starting point, right? Because by asking these questions, one, you're sourcing a ton of great information about potential objections or language that people are using around your product. And so you can bake that in, but you're also bringing them along for the ride and people naturally feel more invested in something that they've made an investment in, right? And and by asking them for help, if they see that you've baked in their thoughts and their ideas, um, they are invested in that product now, maybe not financially yet, um, but they have a little bit of investment, which is going to really help you out in the long run when, when you're trying to make the sale. So the next thing you do is, is try to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them. Uh, they filled out the survey and you've baked that stuff into your, your offering mentally at this point. So you go to them and you say, Hey, do you mind if we jump on the phone for you know 20 minutes to talk about your feedback? And you sit down and you talk through everything a little bit more, you know, Hey, you asked these two questions, where's that coming from? You know, what's the context? What's your situation? Tell me a little bit more about that. You know, what concerns would you have about a resource like this? What would you want to make sure that it included? And by talking to all of these people, one, you're continuing the relationship with them. You're building a relationship with them. You're also increasing the investment from their side because they're giving you more information, which you're then going to bake into this offering. And you're also getting deeper on the objectives and the language that these people are using.
And so at the end of those one-on-one conversations, you can go back and you can put together a brief for your service and you send it back to them and you basically say, you know, hey, so-and-so, thanks so much for all of your help putting together this resource. Um, I just wanted to let you know that we've included your feedback in X, Y, and Z ways. Here's what the resource or the product is going to offer. And we're doing pre-sales for this. So if you want to get in early, you know, the price when we go to market is going to be X, but I'm going to give you 50% off because of all of the investment that you've made and the time that you've taken and the answers that you've given us. Would you be interested? And then you look for the conversion rate. How many sales do you make for uh, right up front with that 50% discount? And if it hits a critical mass, which is I usually aim for a 10% sell-through rate. So if we had 100 people, I'd want 10 sales at least. If we hit that, then I feel validated, right? Because 10% of the people I talked to were willing to give me their credit card information and, and their money before I'd even built this product. So I'm not wasting any time building the product before I have validated that people are willing to pay for it. And then what happens is you build the product and then you sell it for a full price to A, all of the people who didn't buy from you originally, but B, the rest of your list um, that, that you are now continuing to grow off the back of knowing that this product is being validated and doing some additional marketing on top of that. So that is what I would do. I wouldn't worry about business cards or LLCs or websites or any of this other stuff before I'd validated that product first. And if you do that, uh, you are going to knock it out of the park with the side hustle that you've created instead of going down the hope marketing path and creating something and, and praying that somebody is going to use it. So that is it for this month's Ask Austin Anything. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it. These episodes are, are some of the most fun for me. If you want to ask a question for February's episode, all you need to do is go to cultivatedculture.com forward slash AAA. Again, cultivatedculture.com forward slash in the letter A three times. You can drop your question in there. We'll handpick a few to answer next month. But until then, we really appreciate you listening and we'll see you on the next episode of the Dream Job System Podcast. 